again to Arcway Ministries Church's sponsored Riding with the Past. I'm the host of Orlando Arcady of Arcway Ministries Church. How are you guys doing today? I hope everyone's had a blessed day. Uh, it's a little overcast. The traffic is moving great, so I expect to be able to make it to my destination uh, without any problem. I uh, may run into a little bit of traffic, but let's see how it goes today, huh? So, what is today's topic? Um, let's talk about something that's been uh, continuing from my last episode, which is, who is Jesus? Mainly, more so to the point, who is Jesus to you? And in understanding that point, um, in my first episode, I tried to um, capture what everyone faces, the basic understanding, the basic, what people believe basically about Jesus Christ and about God and about um, their, their spiritual uh, existence and how that all plays out in different and where the root of most of those things are. Uh, I think it's extremely important to understand that even though we all have different different levels, stages, and areas that we hold um, as as core beliefs, that we generally branch or we, we source from one of four particular viewpoints, points of view. Uh, and I wanted to outline those four points of view. I should say we outline those four points of view in reference to the uh, source, which would be the New Testament church as we have it today, in regards to Jesus Christ. Um, by those four Gospels, uh, the three Synoptic Gospels and then John's Gospel. You can't count, uh, point of information, you can't count John's Gospel as a Synoptic Gospel because it came a little bit later. It's not one of the most ancient. So the three Synoptic Gospels are Mark, Matthew, and Luke. And the ideals that are ported from those particular Gospels have a tendency to lay the groundwork for the different types of belief. And um, you can see a lot of what we have today in our different viewpoints on those four Gospels. For instance, uh, Mark and his perspective of Jesus Christ was one of a more uh, ancient and closely tied it mainly gave you just the basics of uh, a man who was special and who was uh, gifted or divinely inspired so to speak uh, a prophet uh, someone who had God's attention, uh, who influenced both Jew and Gentile, 
I like to certain extent the mainly Um and in that role in Mark, uh, Jesus is considered to be a man, and only a man, but a, a very special man, um, not particularly divine in his life or work, but also considered in a mysterious manner uh, one of God's chosen because he's taken up, just like many of the other patriarchs that had been taken up prior. He was just amongst the many, uh, as Enoch was, as another other 93, uh, as uh, Elijah was. Um, and so this is what he would say in Mark. In Matthew, uh, Mark was not good enough. Uh, so in Matthew, you have um, the concept and the idea that Jesus Christ was a new Moses, someone who the Jews were to now look at for their continued relationship with God. And if they rejected that relationship with Jesus Christ, they rejected that relationship with God. And so Matthew became the catalyst for all of the Jews to begin to view Jesus Christ as the new Messiah, the new leader, the new focal point, the new presenter of salvation. Um, and that's what Matthew did. So of the two so far, um, if we were to look at the different branches of beliefs that we have today, uh, with Jesus simply being a man and being a very popular man, we have the Jehovah Witnesses, um, some many oneness groups um, that believe just in God and God alone, uh, Muslims, uh, Islam, and its belief kind of centers around that, that concept, that older traditional understanding of who Jesus was out of Mark. Um, and Matthew, um, we have more of the Jewish Messianic, uh, the, the Baptists, uh, those that hold some traditions of uh, Judaism as sacred and as functional, but not yet adhering to all of the concepts and the ideals. Um, those belief structures that exist in that realm. And then in Luke, you have the general um, Paulinistic churches. In Luke, you have the attestment of the apostles, more so, uh, that flows with Acts. And in Luke, Jesus becomes the Messiah and he becomes a divine influencer. And by that statement, I mean, because he did it, we can do it likewise. Because God raised him from the dead, he can raise us likewise. In other words, all of the things that Jesus was, uh, had, was, was provided access to in God, we also have access to in God. 
And so the manner and the means by which we have access to that is in the same way and same vein as, uh, as, as Jesus is the example or the first fruit, being the Messiah, being divine or made divine after his resurrection. Uh, Paul held that belief. If you really don't know, Paul did not believe that Jesus Christ was God while he was preaching and writing his letters to the churches in his lifetime. No apostle ever believed that Jesus Christ was God. That came later, much later. Uh, none of them. There were no Sadducees, there were no Pharisees, there were no Zealots, there were no Essenes that believed that Jesus Christ in the early, maybe up to 100, maybe 150, believed that Jesus Christ was God or could be God itself. That came much later, that came around maybe 180, 190-something around there. Uh, that's when Jesus, it, it wasn't... It wasn't arguably beneficial for Jesus just to be the incarnation of the Messiah after the temple is gone. Because the Messiah, if Jesus was the Messiah and the temple is gone, under Rome, and Rome was still around, as long as Rome was listening, there would be no Messiah. So when is he coming back? Or is he done? And we're done with everything. Right? So, to answer the obvious question, John provides that backdrop to do so. And in John, you have what we know now as the Christology of God's, of Jesus' divinity. And in that, there is a shared authority with God that Jesus Christ has um, in the sense of Trinity that not only is the authority of God a shared authority of the singular God with not only the Son, but also with the expression that God has being the Holy Spirit. And all three of these have a shared authority in God. And so, this came, that, that concept and idea didn't exist even in 200. That didn't exist until well after 335, 340. Um, and it was very loose then because it was a very, very difficult concept to get around because you had to give up the fact that God is God and have to give up almost every authoritative scripture that existed in the Old Testament that said that there's only one God. So you had to give up quite a bit in order to gain that. But if you're taught that, you don't have to give up anything. You just have to accept it. So it became easier to profess as people died out and as more people coming in were taught what was necessary in order to understand the existence of the Messiah and the divinity of Jesus Christ in the world today, or at that time, and even in this day.
okay? So we see uh, the evangelicals, the Catholics, in uh, the, the March of Luke. So actually, more of the evangelicals are more, um, and the more Catholics are more uh, uh, of the John persuasion. Uh, they've, they've, they've established Athanasius uh, in his view. They've rejected Arius in his view. So Arius would be more of the Luke crowd, which was sort of entertaining um, to mostly think as of what we have today uh, would be the would be the Luke crowd or the Arius crowd would be the oneness churches that we have today. Not the Jehovah Witnesses churches, um, not the uh, Mormonist churches, but more the Pentecostal churches, more of the the Assemblies of God churches, those oneness churches, those that believe in Jesus Christ um, as as the entity that professes unto others and proclaim unto others God, but there is only one God. Now, and that his name is Jesus. That is the concept and the idea of most of those apostolic, Pentecostal uh, assemblies of God, although a lot of the assemblies of God still do believe in Trinity. It's sort of a a difficult, uh, murky world as people are beginning to look for new avenues and new streams of revenue, growth, um, they're realizing, hey, most people believe in Trinity. Um, It's not such a bad idea to just go ahead and let them do that and still uh, maintain the viability of our core beliefs for ourselves uh, and become a little more open to this thing called, in this thing called the gospel. Um, so the compromising is still uh, is, is occurring. It's been occurring for a while, uh, but it's becoming more and more um, it's, it's becoming more and more ramped up. Um, but that's just the way that it is. So it's it, it's difficult to see who's who amongst many different doctrines or people or places, churches. So it's important to understand what doctrines exist in the world so that you understand what beliefs you're ascribing and which one makes more sense to you. Uh, For me, in particularly, I used to come, I came out of a sort of a Trinitarian youth when I was a kid, a child, um, Baptist, and then um, everything was Church of God in Christ because the singing and the Baptists were all funny. And so most of the churches and most of your grandmothers all came and took the Baptists. But my grandmother uh, grew up and was taken care of by a oneness church. And on my, on my mother's side, on my father's side, it was Baptist. And so uh, I got exposed to both oneness teaching and Trinitarian teaching. And both of them were confusing at the time. <laughs> and so, um, as I grew up, I went with my mom and my mother's side of the house, and so I learned more about oneness. 
But as I got older, I began to recognize the Trinitarian signature in the Oneness Doctrine that had a tendency to validate the criticism that Oneness teaching was an error of Trinity. And I began to to look into that as I got older and I became more aware. And, and so I did more researching, studying, and drafting conclusions, and checking, and, and I found that that's true for a lot of different churches. The environment that created that issue is that environment that allows individuals to still kind of mingle with the Church of God in Christ and yet still maintain a, a, a trumpet that they believe in one God. And that's enough. So as long as they blow that trumpet, they're in good with the oneness crowd and as long as they keep their mouth shut or they sing the songs, they're in good with the Trinitarian crowd. And this is just pretty much how it works. You really don't know who's who and what's what. So your, your doctrinal premise and the belief really doesn't matter. It's, it's all about how you treat people and who you know and how you act and how you react to this world. Not necessarily what your state of existence is. Uh, so, uh, I've found that the state of existence and the state of my life matters to God. And in trying to get that down, so that I could get that covered with God, at least to get my face down, I found myself looking more towards Judaism. And not towards the Messianic Judaism. I went through the Messianic Judaism to begin to look at the Orthodox Judaism. And as I began to look at the Orthodox Judaism, you began to see some of the many, many fissures of error in a Trinitarian belief structure that holds most people's attention for salvation. And that created a very big concern for me. So much so that I began to look at my own belief structures, fissures, and I found that there are some cracks in the doctrinal premises, um, mainly because we just don't know what those things mean in the Old Testament to reconcile them to what oneness is in the New Testament and what it was supposed to be. So, as we go through and look at the Gospels and understand when they're written, when the Apostles wrote, we can get a very good understanding and an idea of what we believe and how we believe them. Uh, how can we? By simply taking the Gospels and looking at them at face value. Don't try to find the justification for your belief in Mark and when you don't look for it in Matthew find something and then say okay that's what Mark was talking about 
indicated your foreigner. Getting a foreigner because you didn't expect it, didn't think that it existed to go that far. Somebody else took it far enough because they didn't feel that what they believed was addressed. And so they added in their belief and they took it a little further. And each one took it a little further. So that now by the time we have John, we have a full Christology that has Jesus Christ equal to God. Which is absolutely contradictory to the Old Testament. Absolutely, 100% contradictory to the Old Testament. So, you can't reconcile that God is God and He's only God in Deuteronomy 4 and Isaiah 48 and Isaiah 42. He's the only Savior only God, the only thing you're going to get, yet now we have two. That means he's not the only, and he lied. Well, was God talking of something else that made him say only? You know, is he talking about me and us only? That is what he said. I'm pretty sure God has command of the English language or the Hebrew language enough to tell the Hebrews what he needs because he held them accountable to what he said based upon what he meant and how they understood him. And so, if they understood him to be one single entity, person, that it, you can't go making two or three of them of him because it fits your, your persona or your perspective. That's just the way that it works. Um, so, we all know this when it comes to God, but we kind of say, well, we understand that, but there has to be an answer for Jesus. And the answer was already provided by the apostles, if you care to look, or if you're okay with what you find. And a lot of people really aren't okay with what they find. And a lot of people really don't understand how to look at the scriptures objectively. Because you've never been taught to look at the Bible objectively. You've only been taught to look at the Bible subjectively. I have a subject that I want to find out within it. And if you read it and you're looking for just help, or inspiration, there's a whole, there's a ton of inspiration in the Bible. Doesn't necessarily mean that that inspiration equates to salvation. It means the inspiration equates to a good life, assisting others, being connected to others, performing acts and good, and developing a good heart. Not necessarily for salvation's sake, but more so, so that God's image can be reflective in the earth, which is what God wants. And we can all do that, regardless of denomination, regardless of belief, regardless of your particular strain of faith. That's something we can all do. Benefit our fellow man. Assist with the poor, uh, assist with those in need, 
and those in, that need help. Uh, help someone make it when they couldn't. You know, don't just be a, 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 a brand in the fire. Be the fire and add to the fire. You know, a spark is fine, but a spark is a spark because you know a spark is going to go out. A spark can light a fire in a, new, in a new place, but it needs a place where there's nothing there in order for it to catch. If there's something else there, it's another spark. Two sparks are better than one spark. Three sparks, four sparks, five sparks, now you have a fire. The goal of a spark is to build a fire. A spark that stays out by himself will burn itself out because it has no fire to feed it. You have to stay connected to something. Wherever you go, you have to be to, to build or develop. Build something new or develop what you've got. Understand? Build something new. Move to build something new and connect or develop where you are at. Okay? That's what we are called to do. That's what we need to do. That's what we should be doing. That's how we grow. That's how we change and influence people towards God. But we have to do it all on the same page. We have to be one fire. We can't get another fire. Strange fire don't last with God. That doesn't mean a strange fire is not going to build grow is just not God's fire. And there's a lot of strange fire. A lot of people said, oh, strange fire is the tongue, speaking the tongue. I remember that. I've heard that. All these other churches, one these churches are all strange fire. Tongues of fire. You know, strange. It may be receiving the Holy Ghost was strange. To the apostles, and it was strange to those three thousand that were influenced by it and all did it. It was different. It was new. It was strange. It was unexpected. There was a familiarity of sorts, but it wasn't. It wasn't something that was deemed necessary or deemed available. But once it sparked, it grew, and the church grew, and the validation of Jesus Christ's name became something that this world would have to deal with forever. And then somebody put water on it because it's it's illegible. Hellenism came in and said, we don't understand it, so stop doing it. What we understand is Hellenism. This is completely foreign. It's almost tribalistic. It doesn't make sense, and no one wants, no sane person wants to be there. Stop it. So, 
they began to stop it. Didn't mean that didn't matter that God initiated it. And that's one of the key things that happens with churches. A lot of things doesn't matter if God's with it or established it. It matters how it looks. It matters how it feels. It matters how it makes us feel. That's what matters more in this thing called God and salvation in the church than anything else. That's what matters more. How we feel. How it makes us feel. If it doesn't make us feel good, we shouldn't do it. I've heard that from many, many Christians. Church should make you happy. You should feel good going to church. You should feel blessed going to church. You have to feel blessed. And if you don't feel good going to church, you shouldn't go to that church. I've heard that. We've all heard that. We believe that. But growth doesn't feel good. And we're not saying stay in a situation that's bad and, and abusive. Oh, by, by no means. And if you're not growing, you have every right to leave. But that's a pattern of growth. You don't feel good. Just are because you're not growing. People feel good about places where they're growing. And they're connected. If you're not connected and you're not growing, you need to go where you can grow and you can connect. I've seen very, very small churches make huge uh, mountains of godliness in men. But they didn't, because they didn't have a whole bunch of people. I've seen places that have a whole bunch of people, huge amounts of people. And everybody is tiny. And no one's growing. And everyone's still trying to get the milk or can't get to the milk. So, anyway, I kind of veered off a little bit. Where were we? I want to talk about, in the next episode... Uh, the who Jesus is to us. Because Jesus needs to be a little bit more to us than we let him be. He needs to be who his name is. And the name of Jesus needs to be understood as not the personage. I don't understand. I don't know if you get that one. I think I'll explain that a little in the next one. Okay? I'll explain that a little bit on the next episode. That the name has to be more than the person. The name of Jesus is more than the person. Because the name of God is more than our understanding of the Spirit of God. The name of God carries a lot of weight because it is His presence. The name of Jesus carries a lot of weight because it is the presence of God. 
Just like the name of Ishi carried a lot of weight. The name of Yahweh carried a lot of weight. The name of Yehovah carried a lot of weight. The name of Elohim carried a lot of weight. The name of God carries a ton of weight because it is the presence of the Almighty. It's not about conjuring the presence of God. It is the actual presence of God. That is his name. Okay? So once we get that understanding down, then we get another view, another way of looking at who Jesus is and who Jesus is to us. All right? And we'll explain that one on the next one. But on this one, I think we're done. I've had a beautiful time talking to you. And look forward to hearing from you again. Bye. Good morning again, and welcome to Writing with the Pastor. I'm your host, Elder Orlando Arcady. Uh, this is another long drive in the morning. Uh, it's a beautiful day. It's a good fall day morning, but weather is very nice, um, my allergies are acting up, and uh, it's that time of the season and year again, so uh, bear with me, and uh, we are going to be talking this morning, uh, continuing on a subject of what Jesus is to us, and uh, this is the second, uh, second or third, yeah, this is the second um, entry or episode of that that second of that series, and I think in the first one we talked about the uh, influence of the Synoptic Gospels on different believers' views of who Jesus is to them. Um, that was very important to get down, uh, I believe, in establishing a base and then building off of that based on any discussion, argument, point, or view that you have. Um, you should at least understand what your base is. And there are multiple bases when it comes to dealing with Christianity. And we need to understand that uh, different churches, different groups of churches, different categories of churches have different bases. And what those bases are and where those bases line up. Um, and so... It doesn't matter whether or not they're popular. It just matters whether or not they're adhered to, which makes them some resemblance to truth. The more people that believe it, the more true it seems to be. That's not necessarily the case when it comes to God, but that is the case when it comes to humanity and the human heart and the human view. So, uh, let's continue. Um, what Jesus is to us. Um, I'm not going to get into each in an authoritative point of view um, when I say, oh, discount everyone else's belief and just adhere to mine. <laughs> That's not what this is about. This is just a discussion and talk about these things and just get them into, into the open and see where, they, see where you lie. I believe wholeheartedly that people should know what they believe and just say, this is, this is where I believe in where I grew up with. That's fine. Um, know where that trajectory is by the base. Um, 
so here we go. Let's continue on. Um, as we move from the first to second century century of the early church uh, and after the destruction of the temple, we find um, in the Jewish Christian community a chasm open, a very big, a very daunting cavern. Uh, you have um, sympathy and empathy for the Jews from the Gentile Christians uh, regarding the destruction of the temple by the Roman Titus, uh, son of Vespasian, who destroyed the temple and put down the Jewish uh, uprisings of good, Masada, so on, and um, incorporated the Jews into the Roman uh, culture and the end of the culture war. Um, in other words, you're going to now start doing what Romans do. All of the laws that were set aside strictly for the Jews to not have to adhere to are over. All of this coddling that they did to adhere to Rome, to Jewish views, uh, Jewish needs of not bowing down to the Roman emperor and worshiping the Roman emperor once a year, all of that stuff has gone away. You're going to do it um, because you're a part of the Roman of the Roman community, and if you don't, you'll be chastised, you'll be villainized, you'll be persecuted, you'll have to go through all of the things that, you know, so it was a breakdown of the Jewish belief. So the only other bastion where Jews could run to, to a certain extent, was Christianity. Christianity um, gave a cover to the Jews to be able to at least adhere to certain aspects of Judaism, but Christianity was going through its own transformation away from Judaism as well. There was a large-scale Gentile exodus from everything Jewish around um, 100, 130, 120, um, and as that exodus uh, left the Jewish culture, um, they began to um, buff, rebuff Jewish ideals in Christianity, and they began to hang on more requirements to the Jewish people to believe in Jesus Christ as the Gentile mindset did. So there were a lot of conversations as the Gentiles began to break away from the um, Jewish belief structure that forced the Jews to accept Hellenized views of Jesus, um, Hellenized views of what Christianity will be, uh, Hellenized views of what Judaism was, and um, that's just the way that things occur. To the victor go the spoils. Um, not only of the temples, gold and silver and all of that stuff, but uh, the ideals, the views, uh, the, the rhetoric, the 
all of that that Hellenism was already encroaching upon, they simply just initiated more aggressively the turns and changes that were occurring in the Jewish mindset uh, regarding Christianity. So that old apostolic Jewish church that was founded in 90s, 80s, 60s, 40s, and 30s, that was gone um, and was and was replaced with um, the 120s and the, and the 130s view, um, which was somewhat similar, but then as that began to change in the 200s, uh, things needed to be revamped and re-realized, revitalized. Uh, as the arguments came up and more challenges came up to the validity of Christianity uh, and the fight to keep the belief mainly solely on God and Jesus and not add any other um, Christian-like entities to the belief structure. Uh, certain rules and authoritative um, beliefs had to take place and had to take precedence. And this was refining the Christian thought through the 100s and the 200s. Um, and they were also shedding the, Jew the Judaism of Christianity. And that was a big, big, to, in, in my opinion, that was a big mistake, a huge mistake. But I understand the bigotry that occurs in Rome and the bigotry that comes with Hellenism regarding the Jews who had just been defeated was monumental in influencing the change. Um, no one wanted to be associated with a defeated culture. No one wanted to be associated with a culture that was now persecuted. No one wanted to be, uh, I mean, you had already done, dealt with the martyrdom and persecutions by the Roman government on Christians um, for their involvement with Jews, for their uh, for their bucking of Jewish uh, Roman uh, Roman Roman norms, Roman Roman cultural norms. Um, Christians have their own view and set of requirements and those were not going to be accepted by the Romans. They had already made too many concessions and dealt with the uh, Jews on that matter. They were not about to deal with it with their own Roman citizens taking upon themselves the same kinds of concepts and trying to get the Romans to accept their views as well. That was not going to happen not with the Romans, not again. So they began to aggressively put that down before it was started, year after year after year after year after year. It influenced the Christian communities greatly. The Romans, for the Romans and for the Roman people, it was simply a matter of keeping law and order the way that they believed it should be, be held up. And so uh, the influence manner of that was that when you believe in God and Christ the way that you do, whichever way that it is, you do it with your whole heart, taking upon any 
ulterior behaviors directed at you as proof of your faith, which is considered martyrdom, right? So I believe in Jesus Christ. You're going to hit me for believing in Jesus Christ. That proves my belief in Jesus Christ is correct. And martyrdom began to be the qualifying factor for someone's belief. It was already mentioned in in, in Paul's in Paul's writing uh, that you die for what you believe. You're fully invested in that belief. So if you die for Christ, you're fully invested in Christ. And the devil or the enemy will come and chastise you and fight against you. And so you hold your head up high. You hold the banner of Christ up high. And you are vindicated in that fight. Maybe not in this world, but also in this world and the world in the next. When I say not in this world, in other words, you don't get... You, you still have to deal with the repercussions of that stand um, by those individuals that are coming against you. You're still going to get hit. You're still going to get beat. You're still going to get your stuff taken away from you. You're still going to get killed. But in the world to come, and what you stand for is going to make a bigger impact in the world than what you believed or what you what your death would bring about. Okay? So martyrdom became a, a huge draw for individuals who believed a certain thing to hold on to, to adhere to, to validate their their message. So, uh, it, it, it's just the way that it looks. So, uh, excuse me, I just drink my coffee. <laughs> Voice getting dry. And so, uh, because of the martyrdom, and because of the way people uh were able to validate their views on the gospel message of Jesus Christ, many different beliefs sprang up by those individuals' rugged holds on their beliefs uh, as um, Christians were persecuted for their various views by the Roman government who just persecuted anybody. <laughs> you say, believe in Jesus? Okay, whatever. You're not going to worship, you're not going to um, um, bow down to the idol, which is the, the Roman emperor? Oh, no, now you got to go. I'm not going to bow down to the Roman emperor because uh, I believe that God is a woman. And I will only worship the Roman emperor if he's a woman. Oh, yeah, you got to go. Boom, they kill him off. Someone that believed in him say, oh, he died because he believed in this. And they would follow behind suit. That would be a valid view. So martyrdom became a stone, cornerstone, a chief stone set up for any belief that existed. During this time, in the 200s, there was drafted a view of who God was that was more akin to... um, an economic trinité. So Tertullian came about. And Tertullian was an Egyptian scholar, a Christian scholar. And 
Tertullian was the first person to draft the concept and the idea of a trinity, right? And that there would be three. And he only did it on his death walk. As I mentioned, uh, as he was going to be martyred, he wrote uh, a writing, and in his writing, he mentioned the concept that there would be three in heaven. Uh, the reason Tertullian wrote this is because the general concept in Egypt for authority and power and strength is the triangle and the trinity, the triumvirate, three. Three make up the strongest, powerful unit in the universe. Three. That face, that three-sided, that three-cornered, that's what makes up the strongest entity. And at any time, as the, as the thing turns, one can be on top of the other. But it's still in three. So, coming from a scholarly point of view, if you're on your way to go die, you regurgitate all of the things that you know them as you know them and you put them into practice and practice as you saw them and as you develop them and you want to get them out on paper so that other people can advance them and use them. And this is one of the things that Tertullian believed in. He believed in that three-pronged unit had to be being the most powerful entity or powerful means in the universe, therefore God had to be a three-pronged thing. Had to be a three-entity thing. Because that's just the strongest there ever was. That's Egyptian Gnosticism. That's Egyptian Hellenized Gnosticism. It, it existed since the Great Library, before the Great Library. That's just the way that it had been and always would be. That three was the key. Okay? And so, advancing that into, and an, 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 as he died, introducing that concept into Christianity, because of who he was, he was a very brilliant scholar and an, and an influencer in the Christian belief. And his martyrdom was so poignant that they had to invest what he brought into the Christian view because of who he was and what he did. It created more questions. And these more and more questions developed into, and the rationale behind these questions developed into um, what some would call economic trinity, or what some would call, um, uh, what was Arius's belief? Um, not essential, but it would be economic, but um, the early form of uh, belief that was, there was three set, three in heaven that shared the same construct, their ideal. Yeah, I guess it would be called economic trinity. <laughs> I was just another word for it, but I can't think of it right now. Um, 
it'll come to me in another trend. It'll come to me in a second. But we'll just call it economic trinity. And economic trinity, which is different than the essential trinity, by the way, economic trinity uh, is that there are three individuals in heaven, um, but they share the same view. Essential is, oh, I should say, no, economic trinity, excuse me. Economic trinity is that there is one person in heaven that does three separate things. Essential trinity is that there are three individuals in heaven and they share the same mind. Okay? So the early church between the 100s and the 200s really operated on economic trinity. There was one God who changed and moved between those other three poles, which is Father as God, the Son in redemption, and the Holy Spirit in salvation. And these three works are all performed by the one God. The different constructs that are developed out of that concept was a genus belief, genetheism, in which you had one person, one God, with three faces, three eyes, three faces. That was just a Greek Hellenized view of what that economic trinity would look like. You would see drawings and pictures and sculptures of God being a one individual being with three separate faces on his face, just genetheism, um, Janus. And so other ones would be uh, just one God, and that one God would do all of the work. Uh, And that's pretty much what the apostles believed. It made sense. It was something that Jews didn't really have a big, big problem with, because you were essentially believing in one God doing all of those things. However that looked like to you could be cleaned up. But that you held to the construct of there being one God, you're an economic trinitarian. An economic trinity. This is one of the issues and they call it modalism. That's the word. Thank you. It's called modalism where one individual takes on three different modes. That's one of the catchphrases that is levied against most one Unitarian churches and uh, Apostolic Pentecostal churches by churches, Trinitarian churches of the Church of God and so on and so forth, that those churches practice modalism, and modalism was beat down with Arius lost, because Arius practiced modalism. But modalism and economic trinity was generally about practically about the same thing was the rule of law, rule of thought from mid 100 to the 320 the 324 then the 326 modalism was it until Alexander kicked in in 325 at the Council of Nicaea and they introduced a new view that was growing which was Central Trinity. And Alexander 
in the Alexandria developed this construct and brought it to uh, the Council of Nicaea and because of who he was overturned what had been existent for almost 200 years in one fell swoop and his central trinity became it so they got rid of modalism and rejected modalism and brought in uh, economic uh, got rid of the economic trinity and brought in his central trinity the and then adapted economic trinity under essential trinitarian terms as trinity developed because you still had individuals that just couldn't get with essential trinity and be true to the scriptures as they embraced both the old testament and the new testament so a lot of our doctrinal beliefs and theses have to do with how we embrace and how we view the Old Testament requirements of belief in God with the New Testament views on Jesus Christ and the new philosophies extensional view of who God is and how he is developed by our, our unspoken or unwritten view of God. By, uh, by our Alexandrian view, um, Alexandrian Christianity. And so you can see the different denominational views, all kind of fused, but still sort of clinging together. They're like, um, they're like, they're, they're, they're unsincere. I could say it like that. They're full of flakes. They're one work, one piece, Trinitarian, but they're all flakes. And when I say not flakes, like they just don't believe in them, not, not that flake, not that, that, that contemporary view of flake. But when I say flakes, it means they add in things to their doctrine that doesn't fit to fit the look in the presentation they wish for you to see. They're full of flakes. They're not constructed of a whole construct, of a whole material. They have pieces and parts of them that don't fit. They know they don't fit, but they can't remove them because when you remove them, you don't have anything to replace them. So it's easier just to leave them there until at such time something comes about to fill that gap. And that's what a lot of people are waiting for. That's why everyone keeps trying to add to the global conversation of Christianity. Because everyone's looking for someone in a regular educational scholarly thesis and doctoral dissertational manner to provide a whole publication of view, a, 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 a whole filler. Right? To fill the void, to fill the void in the doctrinal beliefs of that particular group's structure. Um, so, I think eventually I'm probably going to go through each one of the beliefs that exist and identify the flake in that particular belief belief structure, that particular belief structure. 
um, I had already laid the groundwork um, for understanding and viewing that. Uh, it takes a little time, and I got off track, but I'm going to pick that up again and uh, see if I can complete that. Um, mainly, I do it all for myself. I do it because of a God. I never do anything for myself, but my initial motivation for doing it is so that I can understand um, what's what. Not so that I can influence people and change their minds and get, bring them to Christ, but if I do the work and I present the work, I don't give people a reason to, to, to uh, critique my intentions. I'm not doing the work to try and influence people. I'm doing the work because I love the work, right? And so with that being said, I'm going to conclude this matter uh, for now. I think we've moved on into 324, 325. Uh, we've explained uh, generally um, the manner of doctrinal beliefs and the, and the way they, the sources existed uh, in the 200s, um, it still may be a little confusing um, to some of us because this is information that a lot of us have not really, really, really thought about that much. Um, and I know it's kind of critical uh, for some people, but we need to understand something. Something just didn't exist, and they were developed out of different reasons and rationale. They're not valid. And it's important for us to understand that if we're going to attach ourselves to an invalid point of view, we ought to understand why we're attaching ourselves to an invalid view. Am I attaching myself to the view because my parents did it and everybody I know did it? Or am I attaching myself to the view because... I truly believe in that view. Uh, if you believe in Trinity and essential Trinity, you believe there are three persons in heaven. That's what you believe. That's what the view is. If you believe in economic Trinity, you believe that there is one God that does each role, that performs each role equally. That's what you believe. If you believe that there is only one God and he does all things and there is no particular role of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that he adheres to, but he does everything as God, then that's what you believe. And that's the way that it works for you. That's the way you roll. The, the, the idea that you can have all three and be adherent to all three is an error. It's a big error. <laughs> a huge error. You can't. Um, so it it helps for us to understand um, the rigors of the culture of Christianity. This this is this is not something to play with, and this is not something that's easy. It's difficult. It's it's a lot of work, um, and. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, I can't. I can. I can only do what I can do as far as making things simpler. Uh, I can.
probably break it down a little bit more. So uh, maybe I'll go over it again. Um, but for now, we'll call it done and we'll see how it goes. All right. So you have a good day. Be blessed. And we'll continue this on another step and another view. Uh, I'm going to be done with this episode. Um, so I'm going to start another one. Um, maybe around the earlier part. Maybe I'll go over on the next one. Yeah, I will. We'll talk about the four kingdoms, the four different groups of beliefs that existed when Jesus was born, that being the four sects of Judaism, um, the Essenes, the uh, Zealots, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. All right, talk to you later. Bye. another episode of Riding with the Pastor. I'm your host, Elder Orlando James McGady. I am enjoying this beautiful, warm fall day in the beautiful city of Rancho Cucamonga. Uh, everything looks great out here in sunny California. Uh, I'm hoping everywhere that you are, God is with you. And that you are having a good life as well as a good day as well. Uh, I'm reaching out to you today and we are going to talk about a couple of subjects, um, continuing on a subject plan or a sort of a point of view that um, God has on today. And I'm going to be continuing the conversation on who is Jesus to us? And I know the broader question I've gone through about what, how Jesus came to be, who he is, in the minds of different churches and different views. Um, but I want to talk to you about us, you, me, um, and who we see and how we see things how different people see things, uh, what's right, what's wrong, what's true, and what's false, what's, uh, what's embellished, and what's simple, what's simple, um, and let's start there, and we'll see where we go, how about that, shall we? All right, so, um, we last left off talking, I believe, about generations or the centuries, um, the 100s and the 200s, that time frame before the 300s kicked in, um, before the Council of Nicaea, and what the church was, what it was believing, who believed what, and what the development of the doctrine was, and what it was based off of, that it, and that it was based off of an understanding about who Jesus is in relation to God. Um, the concern and, and as we began to see and hear about the uh, drifting away or the pulling away or the, the falling away, away from the Jewish constructs of God and Jesus' relationship with God, which was evident in Luke, um, to the Christology of John, 
and its development into a full-fledged deification of who Jesus was. Um, and we talked about, based upon the different aspects of the Bible, uh, you fall upon uh, those four different concepts about who Jesus is to you. Uh, the first one being that Jesus is just another prophet, a very divine man or a very spiritual man, uh, one who was born uh, not of any remarkable uh, activity on God's part, um, but yet was used thoroughly by God um, for the benefit of mankind and to bring about world uh, peace and world acknowledgement of who God is. Uh, through his teachings, he influenced more many, many people and that he is a good prophet. Um, this is a concept and an idea about who Jesus is, normally associated with uh, those of the Islamic faith, with Muslim believers, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, so on and so forth. Uh, those individuals that are oneness, that believe in God and God alone, not all of them, um, but many of them that are the largest groups, um, more vocal and more ancient ones that have been consistent, uh, but not all of them. Um, and then you have the, and that actually ties to the book of Mark, uh, that concept, that first concept is found in the book of Mark. It's the most ancient concept, it's the most thoroughly vetted, and the one that kind of sets the base of the soup, so to speak, of who Jesus is. And then uh, we add a few vegetables, we add a few aromatics to the soup with the base of the stock, and uh, we come up with Matthew, and in Matthew's uh, perspective, Jesus becomes a little bit more than just uh, clear soup, um, he becomes more than a base, he becomes a messiah someone to listen to, someone who's exemplified all of the, or personified all of the expectations of the Pharisaic church, or the Pharisaic believers in the synagogues, and the Pharisaic Jews. He answers all of those questions. He provides access to the answers of the 13 principles um, to a certain extent. Uh, he adheres to all of the tenets of the law, uh, he validates the law, he validates the expectation of what the Messiah would be, everything that they could come up with at that time of who Jesus would be as a Messiah. Uh, he was in, in route to uh, fulfilling them, and although he never finished, he did accomplish his goal not in the way that they were expecting militarily, but in a way that supersedes um, the physical and in the way that he was bridging the gap between the spiritual and the physical uh, by bringing people together to conquer, thereby conquering the nature of the Gentiles and uh, thereby subduing and winning them to God, 
by introducing God to the Gentiles. And this is Matthew. Um, and in Matthew, you find that draw, that view, that perspective added in a couple of uh, aromatics into the base. And then Luke adds a couple of vegetables. It adds meat on the bone. Uh, it adds a soup. It, it gives you uh, the, the kind of soup it is. Um, and then that 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 broth of that broth and that meat and that base all come together in Luke, in which Luke begins to tell you not only is he the Messiah, he's a proven Messiah by trying to uh, rewrite the lineage of the first portion of Matthew into something more coherent and something that's more long-lasting, tying him back to Adam instead of just to David. Um, because uh, Matthew only went as far as David was concerned, and that's all it needed to be. Luke said, no, we need to go back farther and prove that he was um, the son of God. And as Matthew only purported to show that he was the Messiah and Moses, Luke needed to show that he was the son of God in the sense that Adam was the son of God, and Jesus was the second son of God. Thus, Proofing the idea that the apostles believed that Jesus was the second Adam. And that just like Adam's sin and Adam's uh, result uh, displeased God and brought about damnation, Jesus' result and Jesus' activity brought about the ability to gain access to worldwide life and restitution and salvation from all of the things that our first nature uh, brought about upon us by accepting the new birth. And so that new birth became an access to the new man, which is Jesus, and that Jesus is the only means and way to gain access to the new construct applicable unto life. It does not mean that the previous construct that was applicable unto life is done away with, but that there is another construct that is applicable unto life, and that is Luke's presentation, that it builds, it adds, and it's separate from the previous. That's what Luke is saying. That's what Luke is pushing. That's what Luke, that's the extra meat on the bone. So when most Christians go into church and they see and they say, I'm valid by not following the things of the law, that's what they're talking about. They're saying that under Jesus Christ, authority given to him by God, by virtue of resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily, as it's expected to in the principles of faith that we have access by obtaining and adhering to those principles of faith, the same like reward that Jesus Christ has presented unto us being the first fruits of that, that, that. Sorry about that. Uh, looks like I got disconnected. 
um, thought I had it on do not disturb, but apparently it doesn't work that well. <laughs> so let's continue on, shall we? Um, we, we had just discussed um, the access or the attributes of Luke into the conversation of who Jesus is and talked about people who believed in the concept and the idea that was attributable to the apostles in Luke. That was the original belief of the apostles, by the way. The original belief of the apostles is that Jesus Christ was the Son of God in the sense that Adam was the Son of God. That's the original belief of the apostles. That's what the apostles originally believed Jesus Christ was. He was the Son of God, as Adam was a son of God. That's why Paul taught that Jesus Christ is, or Hebrews believe, he is a second Adam. Okay? The first Adam fell, the second was made a quickening spirit. So, this is the concept and the idea of the apostles. This is not held in many oneness churches. That's not what they believe, that Jesus Christ is a second Adam only. Because that goes against the concept of the, of the fourth uh, uh, article. In the fourth kingdom's concepts. Or the fourth uh, soup. Because the fourth soup comes as a soup all by itself. It's not put together by anybody. It's just what you get. It's developed as something else, and I'll get to that in a second. But because most churches hold to the left, to the to the fourth concept about Jesus Christ, this concept that is more ancient and more consistent with the writings of the Bible or the biblical accounts in the New Testament, kind of gets pushed away and moved to the side. Okay, so next concept and idea of Jesus Christ is that of John and John holds the belt John won the contest John won okay and what John won was John won the argument not on the merit of John being right or wrong or true or or untrue but what John won was the co- the argument uh, of popularity. John's article arguments were more popular with the Greeks. The question is, why was John's argument? Now let's define John's. I'll, I'll get to John. What 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 the question is first? First, let me take this slow. I want to jump ahead, but let me take this slow. John's presentation of who Jesus is was established by a Judaic Hellenist who held high esteem for the Hellenism of Greek thought. And what he wanted to do was bridge the gap between Hellenism and Judaism for the sake of Judaism. And he had to come up with a marriage between the two 
or all Jews would be in trouble. So in order for him to do this, he had to utilize the concepts and the ideas that were common in Hellenism and incorporate those ideals into Judaism in a way that expresses the nature of Judaism in the view of Hellenism. And he did this, John 1 through 8. John 1 and 1. That passage and those next eight past seven passages are all Philo Judaeus. Philo Judaeus. Philo the Jew. He developed the Christology concept in the, in, the, in, the, in the ideal that went on to be the bedrock of what we have as Trinitarian doctrine. And that is that Jesus Christ, not only was his lineage going back to Adam, but he was there before Adam. He was there with God, along with God. Now, no other Jew ever held that concept of truth. None of them. No apostle ever held that concept of truth, of idea. None of them. But when the Hellenization kicked in and the apostles died and the temple was destroyed in 70 all bets were off and what the Jews held as authoritative in their belief considered as Christianity was no longer valid because it was based upon the ideal that Jesus Christ would be the Messiah once the temple was destroyed there was no Messiah as long as the foreseeable future Rome was in charge and for those individuals at the time of the writing Rome would forever and ever be in charge of the world and so with that understanding there is no Messiah coming or if he is going to come he's going to come at a time when people are ready for them and he's ready to come and break through and bring new armies and crush everyone that's not like him and build up everyone that is adherent to him and there would be a distinction between right and wrong, good and evil, acceptable and unacceptable, poor behavior and good behavior. All of that stuff would be identified and adhered and and there would be a recompense for each one. That is what John was teaching and John was saying that Jesus Christ was that entity of God which was to perform that function even though the previous concepts and the ideas of a Messiah were now defunct because by by the time John was was in flow The temple was gone. The Jewish aspect and the constructs of validation in the Christian doctrine 
were gone, what everyone was expecting to happen was in no way, shape, or form going to happen, so they needed something new. That meant everything that Jesus was was in question. Everything that that early generation had been taught and been professing was gone, with the temple gone. So what did they have left? They only had the understandings about who Jesus was or could be based upon the realities that they were dealing with on a daily basis. Jesus had to become more than who he than just a Jewish Messiah. He had to become more than a Jewish savior. He had to become a world savior. And he can only be a world savior if he was equal in status or if he was God himself. The initial push was that he was equal to God or in some way, shape, or form Uh, a higher right underneath God, but not quite God, right? Right there, but not quite God. And those were the two standings that existed for a very long time between uh, 140 and 150 and 280, 290, close about maybe, I would even go, I would even vary to go 310, 315. Um, that's pretty much what it was. Um, those churches, the older churches, the ones that were the more stubborn held on to um, the modalism of Christianity. And that Christianity modalism was that Jesus was right there, but he wasn't God. Uh, the tip into him being God came at the argument between Alexander and Arius at the Council of Nicaea. That's where the tip came in. And the tip wasn't, everyone knew that Jesus was God. The question was, in what way was he God? Was he a separate entity to God? Was he right underneath him? Or was he God himself? And that's what the question is. And the question was, well, how could God be this? How could God suffer this? How could do this? How could do that? You know, God doesn't do that. That's not what God is. He's never revealed himself that way. But yet and still. So the question had to be, so they had to shrug off in order to finally be done with the arguments. They had to shrug off Judaism. Judaism had to go. They had already, there was already the arguments against Jews and Judaism for its rigidity and its inability to be accommodating to other people. Since it's not accommodating to us, why are we bending over backwards trying to be accommodating to it? Right? Since it's not into, since Judaism is not into allowing us freely into it. Why should we allow its ideals to be freely into us? The reason for that answer is because Judaism is the mother 
Christianity is the daughter. And the only way the daughter can get out from underneath the mother is if they hold the mother in high esteem, but also at the same time deride the mother and its authority and kick off and shrug off the authority of the mother while saying the mother is still worth something. The mother has value. We just don't recognize that that value is viable value. It's valuable, but is it viable? Is it functional? Is it accessible? Is it usable? It's not usable anymore. It's great if I'm going to make that, but not if I'm going to make this going forward. And that's why I say John is a whole new soup. John is a whole new soup. John supported an idea of a whole new soup. The old soup with the broth and the vesh and the aromatics and the recipe of creating the soup that was established by uh, uh, the apostles and Jesus and the disciples and all of the things that went along with those teachings. That soup was a Jewish soup. We don't want no Jewish soup anymore. We want a Christian soup. We want a Hellenistic soup. We want a Greek soup. We want a soup we recognize. We want a soup that looks and tastes good with the things that we're used to having in it. And that's what they did through John. That's what they did through Trinity Doctrine. Because Gentiles had always and will always be more comfortable with polytheism than monotheism. Always will. Always will. They will never, ever be very comfortable with monotheism. I don't care who they are. Most Gentiles will not be comfortable with monotheism. Because monotheism is means that I have to be inherently adherent to one single entity's will. And I can't do that. I must have my own will and my ability to choose myself for myself which way I will go. And I must be able to control what I believe. And I can't do that with Jewish monotheism. See, Jewish monotheism for Gentiles identified and antipathized all of the things you had to give up in order to gain access to a God that you may not have known about that well. But to gain access to salvation, you had to go through circumcision. You had to go through the dietary laws. You had to take on all of these options of what you can marry and who you can't marry, who you, who you, what you could wear, what you can't wear, uh, where you should, who you can associate with and who you can't associate with. And all of that went flew in the face of most Christianized people from a Jewish perspective and a lifestyle. Now, it was okay if I was a pious individual and I was seeking the piety of the ancients and the piety of uh, individuals that were set themselves apart, the Essene piety which is identified in the monks, uh, the, the different groups, the zealot 
piety which is identified in evangelicals and in those individuals who are so gung-ho and they want to go out and change the world. Those are like the zealots for Jesus, for God. There are still those four kingdoms that existed in the previous writings that we talked about earlier. It's just that they are more enhanced or pronounced through Gentiles without understanding where those divisions are. And the divisions are established by God because of the aspects of the personalities of mankind. There's something for everyone to adhere to, to present to themselves and to express themselves in God's body. Yet they all want to worship God correctly. Some want as many people as possible and to be as relative and viable and valid to as many different um, mediums in the world. These would be the Sadducees. The Pharisees believe that we should always maintain a sense of value to our core values, who we are. This would be the Pharisees. The Zealots are the go out and spread the gospel. This would be the evangelicals. And then you have the individuals who uh, uh, want to separate themselves and just, you know, think the other three are just bat, bat but crazy and that they're way too far out and they're not adhering to anything most ancient. This would be like the Muslims and the oneness, the Jehovah Witnesses. Okay? Pentecostals or something like that. Pentecostals sort of spread, and many of the people's beliefs, many churches' beliefs sort of toggle between those four camps. You would find some churches that blend uh, one or two camps together, and that works for very good reasons for some people. They're all based upon an old construct that God had established for the Gentile, or for the Jews, or what had occurred for the Jews, and then uh, how we and tribalism kicks in regarding my way or your way is better. Once Trinity kicked in and it allowed for individuals to believe in things that were different, you began to see a lot of offshoots and then you began to see a lot of people try to force the idea of Trinity about, about on everyone. In other words, once the rulership was established, this is the belief in God, there is no other acceptable manner. And all of these other ideals that propped up after the Council of Nicaea about who Jesus is and how to worship him and how to worship God, all of those things began to be crushed by the church. The church went on many reviews and many uh, outtakes to try and do what they needed to do to consolidate the gospel, to make it the single most important viable rule and idea. Whether you've agreed with it, understood it, or not, it didn't matter. If you mentioned the word of the name of God and Jesus, you were Trinitarian. And that was it. Arius lost. That meant no other view could occur but Alexander's view. Athanasius uh, 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 held 
uh, different views. Sibelius came up with some extra stuff. But for the most part, what the apostles had originally taught was incorporated into the construct that God, that Jesus was God from the beginning or with God from the beginning as well as the Holy Ghost from the beginning. Three persons in one. That's what many people hold to today. That's what Jesus is today. Jesus is three in one. Jesus is the concept and the ideal of the Father, the concept and the ideal of the Son, and the concept and the ideal of the Holy Ghost. The three pillars of faith all in one. All in one name, Jesus. All in one person, Jesus. Now, I must leave you with this. Jesus never taught that that's who he was. He never persuaded men to think of him in that manner. He never asked and never ascertained anyone to draft the conclusion that he was God. We must say this because it's the truth of the gospel. Mark, Matthew, and Luke, and John record Jesus telling people, don't say I am God or I am equal to God in any way, shape, form or possible. It will not go over well. That's not what I am. That's not what we do. That's not who I am. That's not what you're looking at. But that didn't stop people from seeing him that way later on because they needed him to be that thing. In the face of criticism, in the face of uh, individuals that were willing to corrupt the doctrine of God, they all needed some stability. And the stability came at 325 of the Council of Nicaea. That was good enough for the church to make it through all of those years. Okay? Now, I'm not talking about all of the things that were done to Jews and to Gentiles and the people that didn't believe in Trinity. Some people that did believe in Trinity but didn't believe it in the same way. Some people that uh, some people didn't like believing in the way that they were. Didn't like the color of the skin of the people that were believing in God. You know, all of that stuff comes into play when you deal with anti-Semitism, uh, anti, let me just, straight racism. Uh, bigotry uh, envy all of that stuff comes into play but none of that stuff really matters when you look at what God wants out of his people and I'm not saying to excuse anything but what's done is done we can't go back and say hey you're no good because you did this to these people. Those people were no good. And they'll have to deal and answer for their actions. Just because that's what they did. That doesn't mean that's what 
these individuals are going to do. And we have to fight and we have to uh, keep working at making this world a better place. We have to fight to make this place, this world a better place. And we do that by starting with us. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Jesus is to us. Jesus isn't the development of the beliefs strains. Jesus isn't the camps. Jesus isn't the soups that we eat and that we've, we've adopted and we hold to. Jesus is to us the means to bring God down to earth through repentance, through acceptance of responsibilities, through the through the connectedness that we must present and nurture one to another. I'm not trying to get all uh, flower child on you. (laughs) But what I want to say and show is that whether you believe in Trinity or oneness, if you believe in Trinity and you hold to the values of Trinity, learn of God and see if it stays. If you believe in oneness, hold to the tenets of oneness learn of God and see if it stays the only people that know God intimately because they've been punished by God for doing what you're not being punished for one way or the other if you're right or wrong if you're wrong are the Jews they got punished I mean they literally got punished when they didn't believe God correctly. And when they believed God correctly, they were rewarded. They were nourished. They were lifted up. But when they didn't, they were downcast. Look at the example that God set before us. Are we supposed to have someone else in the face of God? In other words, someone equal to God. No, you're not. It does not matter whether or not you believe in the salvation of Jesus Christ. You're not supposed to have someone else in any other name equal to God. You can't. That's a very big no-no. You can't do that. So if Jesus isn't equal to God, what is he? The apostles taught that he was the son of God. All the writings of the New Testament scriptures and the churches that Paul wrote to testify that the belief of the apostles and the teaching of the apostles was that Jesus was the Son of God. He was 
lifted up and made divine because he was the son of God. I kind of adhere to the apostles' doctrine. I believe that Jesus was the son of God. God is God. God will always be God. There is no other God but God. There will never be another God but God. I have to adhere to that because that's what's written. You have to adhere to it because that's what's written. You don't get another shot at that. (laughs) So um, I'm going to call this one done. I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to leave it for you to decide. I don't want to make the decision for yourself. I just want to say this is just the facts. So this this is what Jesus is to us. He is the means to heal this world. And we need to adhere and use the name of Jesus to do just that. We need to come together, agree, understand what thus saith the Lord, and then move on what we're answering. Okay? So, with that being said, I'm going to shut down for now. God be blessed, and I shall see you and hear from you and talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye.